Hey guys, we're about to hop into an interview with Gregory from Catholic Apologetics, or 5-Minute Catholic Apologetics. Gregory is an individual that went from the manosphere, that whole uh, the red pill sort of movement, not completely in-depth into it, but he did it some, from somewhat of a Christian perspective. And we're going to touch on that a little bit of how he transitioned from that to now being a Catholic apologetics and having a specific Catholic apologetics channel. His whole idea is to offer succinct tips to provide effective apologetic strategy in a short burst just so us Catholics don't lose the war of attrition to be able to defend our faith. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Gregory. He's a wealth of knowledge, and I think you all will enjoy this conversation. We touch on a lot of things, whether it's Catholic apologetics and a lot of misrepresentations that some Protestants have for the Catholic Church. We also touch on the red pill movement as a whole and how there's no guiding light of God and it's always about material things. We'll touch on that along with a wide range of topics. So I think you all will enjoy this. I enjoyed this conversation. So I guess we'll just get right into the interview. Here we go. I'm here with Gregory from 5-Minute Catholic Apologics, uh, Apologetics. Sorry, I misspoke. But uh, thank you, Gregory, for uh, being here. If you want to give a quick little rundown about your faith journey, I found you on YouTube and I really enjoyed your quick little Five, they say five minutes, more like seven to ten, but I still appreciate the, the short apologetics that you do on that channel because it, it's helped me grow in my Catholic faith and better understanding in short bursts but because, you know, you have like Catholic answers and they go on for a long period of time. But sometimes bite-sized information is a lot more amenable to my my brain, so I appreciate that. So if you want to give a lowdown on who you are and uh, how you got to where you are right now. Sure, Adam. I appreciate you having me on. I'm a 49-year-old cradle Catholic, and I grew up in the Catholicism of the 80s and 90s, which uh, was a time of poor catechesis and a lot of experimentation with mass. I, I went to Catholic school from first grade all the way through college. I went to a Jesuit high school in Texas, and then the university I went to was Catholic in name only. So this is during the 80s and 90s. And so I, a lot of, I saw a lot of the experimentation, like at the university I went to, they had the interpretive dance during the Our Father. You know, we had all this wacky stuff that, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think was the best, uh, but uh, always been a cradle Catholic. I've always uh, had truth. I believed in the, in the truth and veracity of the Catholic faith. Certainly in college, I was, uh, as as Christ tells Peter in the garden, the, the, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, I was trying to get laid and all that stuff. But overall, I've been a pretty devout Catholic. Uh, about five years ago, I started a, uh, I should go back. It's about seven years ago, I started a podcast on um, weight loss because I was a fat kid. And I lost the weight and I've kept it off for 30 years. So I started a podcast there. And then from there, kind of branched out to doing holistic health podcasts. And and then uh, eventually I started a YouTube channel on on the on Manosphere stuff. So if people are familiar with the Manosphere, um, I think it's classically misrepresented by the liberal media. But uh, there's a lot of branches of it. But uh, men going their own ways, one of them, uh, PUA, pickup advice, all these things. So I had a channel, uh, a YouTube for quite some time on that content, and it did well. I had nine million views in three years. But eventually, during that time, I realized that. I, I was trying to help men recover from divorce because if people aren't familiar with this, 90, 70% of divorces are initiated by women. And if the woman's college educated, it's 90% of the time uh, they initiate it. And I think there's this idea that when there's divorce, it's the man that initiates it to get with the new woman. 
that's not the case at all. In fact, women initiate divorce. And so the, the, the kind of reason for that channel to start was to help men recover from divorce because they would lose their assets, they lose access to their kids and, and so forth. So there was this trend with men just opting out of marriage altogether because marriage is perilous for a lot of men because at any time, because of no-fault divorce, uh, a woman could divorce them and they could lose everything that they hold valuable. So I was doing that channel. And then as a Catholic, I thought, well, I, I'm, I'm, stored, I'm stirred to do something Catholic. And I was thinking kind of like the parable of the talents, uh, that great parable in Matthew where somebody's given five coins, someone's giving 10 coins, someone's giving one coin. And it's essentially an allegory for like the, the talents that God gives you. What are you going to do with these things? And so I felt like I, I didn't want to be in a situation that if I died, God at my particular judgment would ask like, what have you done with the gifts that I've given you? And I was like, oh, telling men uh, not to get married and get laid, you know? So uh, I think out of, out of that and just out of fear, uh, mm-hmm. I created five minute Catholic apologetics and that's been around for about two and a half years. And so I've had that, uh, up on YouTube. And then I also have a movie YouTube channel called the cinema rag, which is about kind of celebrity gossip movies, reviewing movies, uh, just stuff like that. So I have a lot of interests. I'm a teacher by trade. Uh, so that's what I do, uh, on my my private time. So I have a lot of different interests, but the Catholic channel is fun because it gives me an opportunity to talk about the faith and uh, defend the faith. And like you mentioned, it's called five minute Catholic apologetics, but rarely have any of the episodes been uh, that long because I, I do have a propensity to talk. So it really should be called like eight minutes and 47 seconds Catholic apologetics. Yeah. But I mean, you dive into it. I, I can tell it, it, it's sort of like a, a teacher background and also uh, if i'm not mistaken you have a few history degrees so you bring that into all of uh what you do on the channel which i personally i don't have a history degree but i personally love history and just learning about it and you just when you that's what kind of brought me back to the catholic faith is just diving into the the history of it all all the different saints and that's why i just i got uh, this shit that says the catholic church established 33 ad i like to wear yeah. this out in public just to stir conversation but yeah, history definitely vindicates the Catholic Church. A lot of Protestants don't know this because a lot of Protestants are woefully ignorant in history. And also, honestly, that's not their fault because most mm-hmm. Americans are woefully ignorant in history uh, in general, but certainly on church history, uh, a lot of Catholics— Wait, you mean Protestant. history didn't start in 1776? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think a lot of Protestants think like the Bible was passed out during Christ's ascension, like he was throwing Bibles out. King James versions mm-hmm. with the table of contents with chapter and verses. And then after that, there's like this big gap into what, uh, until whoever their, their Protestant uh, founder was Luther, mm-hmm. Calvin, Knox, whoever it was. And then they maybe read some of their readings and then they read some of their mega church authors books, you know, if it's mm-hmm. Max Licato or Joel Olstein or, you know, whoever yeah. their big guy is. And then there, there's nothing, there's nothing between, you know, the, the new Testament, Luther and, you know, whoever they're reading right now. And so there's just this wide chasm of like, okay, what about all these, all these writers, you know, we have mm-hmm. the writers of the uh, disciples of the apostles, you know, and, and a lot of Catholics and Protestants don't know this. And this is one of the reasons why Protestants will say there's this great apostasy and all these things. Um, when obviously we know that never happened. Yeah. And it kind of, I was thinking about this today before our conversation is that I, I feel a little I don't want to say sorry for them, but because I've been to Protestant churches because I've gone from 
cradle Catholic, secular, then kind of getting back into non-denominational, then Protestantism, and then back to the Catholic Church through history. And also because Sola Scriptura doesn't make too much sense to me when you look at just the grand scheme of Protestantism and how there's so many sects and they disagree on so many things that that foundation doesn't make uh, too much sense. It, It didn't make too much sense in my brain. But Going to the Protestant churches, I, I kind of feel bad because I know how much they love Christ. You could just see it. You could feel it. But, I mean, they pull out their Bibles whenever they're they're doing their Bible studies, and they have a great community. And I love all the, the Protestants that I've interacted with when I go to those oh. churches. And I kind of feel bad because they're, they dive into the Scripture so much. And I, I just want them to see that there's so much other things that they can dive into with church history and the writings of church fathers. And there's so many, there's so much to dive into that like the history and the vastness of the Catholic faith is just astounding. And I think they would be mind blown of all the different uh, teachings that happened back in like how they made the connections and how over time, the Holy spirit kind of guided the church to bring up these doctrines of say the Trinity and the uh, things along those natures. And uh, it's just, kind of feel maybe you feel the same way do you feel like sad that they're missing out on just the deepness and the richness of the the catholic faith as a whole well i I look at the way the church kind of views protestants we call them separated brethren and in all charity and kindness we we want them to see the fullness of the faith that's in the catholic church and i think that we, we could talk about this later like i think there's some cardinal mistakes that catholics do in practicing apologetics and one of them is insulting and browbeating Protestants, how can you not do that? Oh, you mm-hmm. not do that? That's, that's not in charity at all. And you see it in the Protestant world, how they'll proselytize and just try to get Catholics to leave the faith. And it's just a notch on their belt, right? They really don't care about the person at all. They just want to uh, just get somebody to, to the, the mega church. And so I, I look at it as I do feel bad for them. And, but I, I think that the majority of Protestants, you know, talking about history doesn't really affect them because most of them are raised in a milieu where it's 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 about me and my relationship with the Bible. And what church I go to is not that important. That's why you commonly see a lot of Protestants, especially evangelicals, church jump, right? If you ask a 50-year-old Protestant, how many churches have you attended? It could be 10 to 12 in their lifetime. And there's no issue about jumping from this mega church to another mega church to this megachurch, to this Methodist church, to this Lutheran, because ultimately the theology is not as important as my relationship with the Bible and what the Bible tells me. So if if you go to them in history, those who are interested in history or think history is important will, will respond to that. Cardinal Newman has that great response. Those who read history cease to be Protestant. But I would say that the common Protestant doesn't really care about history because uh, they've been raised in this environment where it's really about me and the Bible, my relationship with Jesus Christ that I find in, in the New Testament, and then whatever feeling I get when I go to the, the mega church and how the Holy Spirit moves in me and the sermon that I get that kind of reinforces what I want to hear. That's, that's kind of the thing. So I don't think most Protestants, history is not necessarily effective with them, but definitely Christ preached that we should have one church, that there should be church unity. So in charity, um, if we find Protestants that are receptive to hearing the truth about the Catholic faith, then I'll share it with them. But um, I don't typically browbeat or proselytize because we're not supposed to proselytize as Catholics. Hmm. 
so the whole point, because uh, I saw in the description of your channel, is you are not trying to be apologetic to the or trying to convert Protestants. Uh, I saw in your description is it, it, I thought it was kind of. I guess funny is the term, but the it was not the intention to convert Protestants or atheists, but to rather inculcate Catholics from suspic suspicious theology so we don't continue losing the war of attrition. And I thought that's that's kind of a very accurate uh, point of what's been going on, is that there's many, me being a, a, pro a prominent example of going away from the Catholic faith because I wasn't really raised with the the richness of the faith as much and understanding the, the grounding of it all and um i guess do you see when it, with your channel do you see more uh what are like the comments like what do you see catholics in there be like kind of oh i didn't realize this and do you do you see it's making an impact um, well i would say that um, yeah, like like you mentioned, my channel, and, and I'll and I'll mention this when I get angry Protestants who post comments that I say this channel is for Catholics to help Catholics understand their faith and deepen their faith and defend their faith because all of us are expected to defend our faith. That's in First Peter chapter three that we're all expected to defend our faith or be, be able to make a defense in charity. So that's the other thing is you do it with a smile on your face because you're actually thinking about the welfare of the other person. That's why I don't really believe in browbeating and, and being hard headed with people. Uh, in terms of the comments. Um, a lot of the original subscribers were from my Manosphere channel. And a, a lot of people in the Manosphere just are irreligious. They're not religious at all. That's why they're kind of lost and wayward, in my mm. opinion. So, yeah, I get a lot of anti-Catholic comments. Um, and a lot of them are just based on not truths. But, I mean, this goes back to uh, Archbishop Sheen, back when he had his television show in the 1950s. He has that saying, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to corrupt it, but it's something like, there's only five Protestants who hate the Catholic Church for what it represents, but there's thousands that hate it for what they think it represents. And so the large majority of, of negative comments I get at the Catholic Channel are just things that the Catholic Church doesn't teach. Mm -hmm. right? We worship Mary as a goddess. Okay, well, show me in the catechism where we do that. You know, or that we worship statues. You know, all, all these things are we're cannibals. These are not truth, but these are things that these Protestants were raised thinking that the Catholic Church teaches, either that they were told that by their family or by their pastors. And so typically when I get these comments, I'm not one of these people that's on Reddit. Like I'm never on Reddit where, you know, you, you write paragraph after paragraph. Uh, let's say a Protestant writes a big, like six paragraphs as a comment in one of my videos. I am not one of those apologists, amateur apologists. That I'm going to write six paragraphs back and then wait for him or her to write six. It's just such a waste of time. And I just, I, I just, I just don't do that. So I typically will tell them, it's like, hey, come on our live stream. We'll talk 30 minutes. I'll answer whatever questions you have. And that's it. Because to me, that's just a much more efficient use mm -hmm. of time. Um, but I think as the channel has gone on, we get less anti-Catholic stuff. And there's more Catholics um, that are posting. But surely I'll, I'll get anti-Catholic comments. And most of the time I'll respond, especially if it's something long. And I'm not going to spend paragraph writing. I'll just be like, Hey, go check out some good Catholic resources like EWTN, Catholic Answers, called Communion. I have videos on these things if you want to check them out. Aside from that, God bless. Or I'll say like, follow your conscience or thank you for replying. Because, I mean, typically these people are not receptive to hearing the truth of the Catholic faith. And that's one of the things about being a Catholic, like Catholic apologist. And all of us have to kind of understand this because we all probably have people that have left the faith in our life is you have to kind of gauge whether or not the person's receptive. And if the person's not receptive, don't waste your time. It's just a complete waste of time.
to talk yeah. about. Uh, you can sort of tell too if they're open to having a, a conversation versus just uh, talking over you. That's w- true with any type of discussion you're having with somebody. Yeah. You can sort of just immediately tell if they're trying to just hear themselves think or hear themselves speak, or they're actually being receptive to the idea. And I was wondering yeah. if you see this a lot with at least in the the U.S. of just American Protestantism and and how they are so it, it seems like they're very ravenous at anti-catholic and so i was sort of wondering if that's it plays into the ideal of the american founding and how there's a lot of these uh the foundation of our nation was built on you know not big bureaucracy or big government being tyrannical and telling us what to do and i i wonder if that plays into the role of uh, here in uh, the protestants in america not wanting to join the Catholic faith just because they see the the big bureaucracy of it all and saying, oh, wow, why should a, a priest be able to tell me how to read the Bible or how to interpret this? And I just wonder if that's sort of a barrier to, that we kind of have to, to break down a little bit. I think there are certainly people that are going to be like, I don't need the Pope. The Pope can't tell me what to do with my life because they have a misunderstanding of the papacy and papal yeah. fallibility. But I would say, honestly, this is probably the, the most con- conducive time in 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 American history for Protestants to convert, simply because if you look at the history of Catholicism in America, it's steeped in deep, deep prejudice. I mean, even the colony of Maryland, which was the only colony that was was created by Catholics, eventually that was overtaken by Protestants. And then you looked at there was there was a deep anti-Catholicism uh, during the time of the founding fathers, and then when the Irish and German immigrants came. I mean, it was really bad, like in the mid 19th century, because they were all Catholics. Then you even had the Know Nothing Party, a political party that was just overtly anti-Catholic. And then you know, you know, as the Italians came, and as all these people came through Ellis Island and Galveston and San Francisco, a large majority of these people were Catholic, Italians, Germans, and then later the Slavs. A lot of them were Catholic. So uh, there's definitely like a nativist impulse from the wasps. Like all these people are coming in, a lot of them are Catholic. And so this is why you saw like around 1920, they just kind of kept immigration. Um, but yeah, for, for sure. Even when Kennedy ran for office, um, he had to give that speech. He's like, I don't take orders from the papacy uh, because there was always this idea of that. And there's, you know, there's always been the Jesuit conspiracies. They were always big, like with Lincoln's assassination and all these things. But I think one of the, the little benefits of the... Uh, the, the decline of Christianity in general in America is that Protestants are probably the least, uh, they have the least animosity toward Catholicism now than ever, because as a whole, American society is becoming post-Christian. Uh, and mm. so I think most people are like, they kind of have this spirit of indifferentism. Like, is there really a difference between any of these faiths? I'll just yeah. be a non-affiliated Christian, which is the biggest step, right? The biggest mm. group now is just people that don't even identify as anything. And so I would say like certainly American history is steeped in anti-Catholicism. Uh, but right now uh, I, I think that if a Protestant were to leave and become Catholic, they probably would get the least amount of blowback now than let's say in 1848. If they mm-hmm. so. It's still probably pretty difficult just because uh, you hear stories of their whole community is Protestant and uh, they have this mindset of uh, Catholics on what they teach. And I feel like a lot of the, the mindset is either what their pastor puts forward or just like media sound bites of uh, what was recently like uh, the the talking about may possibly a blessing of 
uh, gay marriage yeah. or not gay marriage, but uh, all that stuff gets blown out into proportion, especially when you have these meetings that probably have a lot written on it, but you have these media sound bites where they take out this one thing out of context and it's a whole thing. But I think right now is a good time for the Catholic faith as a whole, just because you have the, the ability of all this technology of being able to spread uh, the, the faith as a whole. And maybe Protestants can see, oh, there's a lot of these denominations that are going down this route of, yeah. oh, I they're going to now be condoning same-sex marriage or they're, they're condoning transgenderism. And they see a lot of these denominations kind of fall by the wayside because they're just giving in to, oh, this is my interpretation of the Bible. And I mean, realistically, it's Sola Scriptura, just a side note, it feels like they don't want an authority on it, but at the end of the day, there comes an authority of what you read. It just goes back to however, whatever your denomination set up. It either goes to you as the authority or the pastor or or the higher denomination. Eventually, there's an authority that determines what is said in that denomination. But it, it seems like, at least uh, with the Catholic faith, it's been very sturdy with its foundations, which I think maybe will be a bright side for a lot of Protestants to look and say, hey, why the Catholic faith or the Catholic Church hasn't given in to this in how long? It's just been a, a beacon, so to speak, of just uh, being consistent, and maybe that will win people over. Now, mind you, uh, <laughs> people will always do the comment, well, what about your pope, uh, uh, Pope Francis, or they have issues with him? And uh, the thing I always say is not all Catholics agree with uh, the pope because you, you don't quite understand where – it's the papal infallibility occurs and when it doesn't and the Pope can speak on certain things, it doesn't mean it's like set in stone uh, with the Catholic faith. And I think there's a lot of understanding and the benefit of technology now is you can have people like yourself giving uh, succinct information about what the Catholic faith teaches and uh, the history of it all. Yeah, I think if you look, it depends on the Protestants. You're talking about how um... – the internet, I think, has done a great service to Catholicism, whereas if you look at something like Mormonism, the Mormons, a lot of Mormons have been fleeing the, their faith because the internet has actually been able for them to, to, to look up the history of their faith, their specious theology, the, Joseph Smith and his personal issues. And so you see a fleeing of Mormonism. But I think with Catholicism, the internet in the last 20 years hasn't really hurt us because our theologies is founded on truth. And I think it actually has it, helped us because there's no secret doctrine in Catholicism. You can go to any mass and, of course, you could read the catechism. So it's like a, not we're hiding anything. But when it goes to the Protestants, it really depends. You know, the liberal, the liberal Protestants uh, probably won't like the fact that we have been a consistent beacon of truth when it comes to moral issues like abortion because they want, you know, they support abortion. Um, and it depends on the conservative Protestants. Um, yeah, I think they have a, a big misunderstanding of Francis. And look, I think it, within the Catholic world, and I identify on the channel as a traditional Catholic. Uh, I do attend the ordinary of the chair of St. Peter, uh, which is, I, I like to call it like, it's like an Anglican right Catholic service. It's ad orientum, you have to receive on the tongue. Um, but I would say that uh, the, I think within traditional Catholicism, there is this I wouldn't say hatred toward Francis, but I think that we need just need to be very, very careful because there's we can be very Pharisaic without knowing that we're very Pharisaic, and there's this this sense of hubris 
uh, that you can find on both the radical left of Catholicism and the radical right of Catholicism. And I think this is, is, is quite bad uh, because we know pride is, is the worst of the seven deadly sins. And this idea that Francis is evil or the church is an apostasy, I know the truth as I live in the, my basement in Wichita, Kansas. I know the truth. I mean, there's no more sense of, of arrogance and, and hubris than saying these things. But I've talked about, like, if I if I am somewhat moderate toward Francis, then I'm called by the the, the matrads as a modernist sellout. And, and it's just so ridiculous because they want to hear in their echo chamber that Francis is the most evil person ever on this planet. And I'm not going to say that. And the set of Vicanists would want to hear, of course, that Francis isn't the real pope, depending on if they're a Benedictist or whether or not they go back to 1958 with, with John the 23rd. Um, they they want to hear that we haven't had a valid papacy since then, and if if you if you defend anything like that, then you, again you're you're a radical modernist sellout. And I try to tell people at the channel, it's like know your history. We've had horrible popes. We've had popes that are not good at communicating. I mean, we've had horrible popes in in the in the realm of just being horrible sinners. Of course, we've had we've had popes that have lived in concubinage that have kids out of wedlock that have had mistresses. I mean, that was not uncommon. That was. We've had popes that had practiced simony, just selling papal offices or selling ecclesial offices uh, for money. So it's it's not like we've never had bad popes. And I think this goes back to lack of history, is we want to believe that this is the worst pope we've ever had. And I think some of that is, well, then you don't know history because we've had wretchedly bad popes and we've survived those popes. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to say Francis is the perfect pope. I think he's a pretty bad communicator. I don't think anybody can deny that because he doesn't answer dubias uh, when he's asked of it. And he'll give these interviews with atheists on airplanes where he'll be very vague on church teaching and then he doesn't offer clarification. So I, I would say that that lends itself to to maybe not being the best pope in communication. But I'm certainly not going to say that Francis is, is not uh, the, the valid pope or that Francis is leading the church into apostasy, into a new world order, globalist regime. I'm not going to say that because, look, I'm just a dude in Texas. And anyone who says that they know for sure that Francis is working for the Antichrist or anything like that, it is the sin of hubris. But you see this on both sides. I know better, right? It's, It's the sin. It's the worst sin. I know better. I know better. You see it on the left, right? The church in its wisdom says we shouldn't have female priests or we're not going to give same-sex blessings or, or whatever. No, but the church is wrong. Okay, so the church that's existed for 2,000 years that is protected from error by Christ saying he'll be with the faith so the gates of hell will never prevail on it. They're wrong, but you're right. No, you, you've been corrupted by your Marxist theology typically. And on the far right, it's it's the same thing where I know better, the church is an apostasy, uh, and, and, and again, they don't want to hear the truth. They just they just want to hear what they want to hear, because uh, this is, I think, the sin the sin of singularity. It's like Neo from the Matrix. I know the truth. Everyone else is wrong. I am the savior, and I'm going to expose it for what it is. And everyone around me is ignorant. And it's like, dude, you're you're a guy who lives in Wichita, Kansas, in a basement, but you can make these these pronouncements that you know the truth. And again, that's the sin of pride. So mm-hmm. both of these are sins that can lead us to damnation. And there's no sense of obedience, humility. Like these, these are four-letter words today in America, and even in American Catholicism. Just where's your obedience to the church founded by Jesus Christ? The church yeah. says it. 
It's protected. Believe it. Instead of believing what you think is the truth, which is typically corrupted from secular values or from far right set of mechanist values. Yeah, and I, I think one of the good uh, reasons for this being the, the Catholic faith, at least for my uh, when I was coming back to it, one like simple thing that made me think, oh, maybe that is the actual uh, the the church that Jesus founded is the fact that for two thousand years it's still and it's still standing. The fact that it's, it's gone through some really horrible popes, especially when you read about history, and I think one was a, a pope basically bought his way into the office, and it's still still standing with the the same uh, moral teachings it's kind of profound that it's still at this point and it's lasted long it's longer than the the longest empire which is the longest again, institution of human human history it's the longest continuous institution of human history yeah it's just it, it it's mind-blowing but and now you have uh, recently i've been watching videos i think you actually did a video on it too that made me go down this rabbit hole of the i, I feel like i'm going to butcher it now that i'm getting in my head but the didactic is that what it's called the 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 didache that's it the didache <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. not didactic i don't know why my brain just struggles with words sometimes um i guess that's the engineer in me i'm better with numbers than words but <laughs> yeah so i've been going down that rabbit hole of learning about you know this document that now is getting pushed further and further earlier closer to around the time when the gospels were written yeah. in early first century and it is when you read it it's like oh that's that's the mass that we have. Very that's, catholic. that's yeah. pretty catholic right there and i would just encourage anybody that's curious just to, to read that if you're curious about church history and this goes back to the internet too is because a lot of those apostolic fathers and this and this is for any protestant who's listening or any any catholic who deals with protestantism and or any catholic in general read the apostolic fathers because we have the writings and a lot of protestants don't know this we have the writings of the disciples of the apostles so if you look at ignatius of antioch you look at polycarp you look at clement of rome these three guys are considered the apostolic fathers because they were trained by apostles and we have their writings. Their writings survive. You can find them for free on the internet. And if you read these letters, like Clement of Rome, who was the fourth pope, um, his writings to the Church of Corinthians, you read Justin Martyr, who's not an apostolic father, but he's writing in the, in the early 100s. You read the Didache, which is, I mean, some people say that was written by an apostle, but we don't really know who wrote it. I mean, these are all writings from like 80 AD maybe to 150 AD. But you have these writings and they're all very Catholic. And they all demonstrate that back then they believed in the real presence. They had a mass. I mean, you can see the mass really played out in, in the New Testament. Uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, about receiving the Eucharist not in a state of grace. You look at uh, the, even the, the, the separate Emmaus is a, is a proto-mass, because you read that, and it's they did they read the scripture, and then they broke bread. But certainly, you can read these apostolic fathers, and you can see a lot of Catholicism in those early, in those early years, and we have their writings. So you look at, like, especially like Mormons will talk about a great apostasy, and a lot of Protestants will talk about this, bringing back the primitive church, the church that existed in the early early several hundred years before Constantine created the church, all this nonsense. And it's, well, they do it because they have to justify the existence of their own church, right? I mean, the whole the whole thing is they can't acknowledge that Catholicism or Orthodoxy uh, were there early on in that, that the early church was very Catholic because they'll be like, then why are we here? And this is what, when you talk to a Baptist or you talk to a Mormon, just be like, okay, find me your theology 
in the writings of the apostolic or patristic fathers. Find your theology in those early writings. And they can't because the early church was Catholic. Ignatius of Antioch created the term. That's the first place we see at least the word used Catholic. And that's around like 110 AD. And so they can't find it. The, the early church had the mass early on. I mean, we had the mass before the New Testament was even written. You look at, at when, let's say, the Gospel of John, probably written around 90 AD, 80, 90 AD. And so when he's talking about John 6, the body of the bread of life discourse, he's already talking to an audience that has been practicing and believing in the real presence for 40, 50 years. And so, again, going back to 1 Corinthians, that's probably written you know, maybe around 60 AD. And he's talking about the real presence. So, I mean, all, you, you see the, the belief of the real presence all through this time. And so the mass was being celebrated way before even the New Testament. All, all the letters and the Gospels were written. And certainly by the time that we canonized them, you know, that's the other thing about the, the Protestants. They, they pass out the Bible. They think Jesus passed out the Bible uh, when he was ascending. But they never really think about, you know, soul scriptura, let's say. Like, who decided what, which books were going to be in the New Testament canon? or even the Old Testament canon too, but they never really think about that. Like who put in the chapter and the verses? Who decided these things, right? They just think that, again, they, they don't really think about it because it's not really important. But that's one of the approaches you can use by refuting uh, Bible alone, for example. But I would recommend to anybody to read the Church Fathers. I mean, their writing is relatively approachable. And uh, it will definitely tell you that there was never an apostasy, that the early church was Catholic. Uh, to the core. And Constantine, you know, 300 years later, all he did was legalize Christianity. And he saw for the good of the empire, this is, you know, 313, 330 AD, around that, that uh, there should be a conference convened to discuss some of the Christology issues like, like Arianism. So he convened the Council of Nicaea, but he never touched theology at all. He just was a emperor who um, he had a vision, right, a Milvon Bridge, but he uh, believed that for the for the sake of the empire, uh, we should legalize Christianity. And then later on his deathbed, uh, he was baptized. Uh, and he always had a retinue of bishops around him because, you know, back then and even now, right, if, if you die uh, right after you're baptized, you, you go straight to heaven. So he was like, oh, I'll just hedge my bets. Maybe you live a little hedonistic life, but I got my bishops around me. They can baptize me right before I die. And that's what he did. But, but he, was, he was Catholic in his theology. Of course, his mother, St. Helena, was a big Catholic. She went to the Holy Land and got the, the, the piece of the true cross and other things and brought them back. So, so where does that, uh, uh, the, the whole conspiracy, I guess you say, that the Constantine founded the Catholic faith. Where does that stem from? Is that just... Well, it's just ignorance. Some... I mean, look, there's a difference between stupidity and ignorance. Ignorance is just lack of knowledge. So if you know church history or just early history, you know that there's no way that Constantine could have created the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church existed for the first 300 years. And again, but this goes back to, was there a visible church? Did Christ create a visible church? And he did obviously create a visible church on, on, and gave Peter the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16. And even he talks about it in Matthew 18 on the steps of excommunication. If you have a disagreement with your brother, talk to him. And then if not, bring some people on. And then if not, take it to the church. Right? Yeah, and so the church. you look in Timothy, where Paul gives the qualifications for a deacon and qualifications for a bishop. And there's a lot of other places you can see that Christ intended for thee to be a visible church even after he died. And so... There was a visible church, and you can see 
how we've seen the Bishop of Rome. We have every Bishop of Rome. We know their names from Peter all the way to, to, to Francis I. And so in the early church, we have all this historicity that shows that there is definitely a visible Christian church in the East that mostly spoke Greek and used Greek in their liturgy, like St. Saint, Saint John Chrysostom's liturgy, and then in the West as well. So this idea that Constantine created the church it's just mostly based out of ignorance and then anti-Catholic prejudice because there's no there's no history. History doesn't corroborate that at all. Did that stem from did that stem from some novel? Wasn't that like in the Da Vinci Code or something where that idea was promulgated? Because I hear that a lot now a days in some great gift, quote unquote, to us was that Mary uh, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had kids and that this was covered up by the Catholic Church. Yeah, I, I there there's a lot of things I think promulgated in that that book, yeah, but yeah. And, um, and that book was so big uh, about 15 mm -hmm. years ago, and you'll still find uh, kind of left leaning Catholics who really believe um, that and really believe a lot of the kind of the more modernist thing, the Gnostic Gospels. And look, we don't include the Gnostic Gospels in the canon because they were written 250 years later. So I mean, mm -hmm. and not to mention that they teach heterodox things that were never part of the deposit of faith uh, the first first 250 years. Of, of life of, of the life of the church so i mean a lot of people are like the catholic church covers up the gnostic gospels they should be in the bible well it's like no you don't understand like what was the determining factor in, in deciding what books in the new testament should be in there and one of them was it's one of them was how how in close proximity are you to jesus and the apostles and so something that was written 250 years later mm -hmm. they're not going to be close to the apostles obviously but the bigger thing is that that, that the, those books taught heterodoxy they talk yeah. things that are openly heretical yeah makes sense and it, it, it sort of it, it kind of leads me to think just having this knowledge about the, the church is so important for catholics these days who are coming back into the faith and learning about i mean one of the things that i see as a bright side is you see a lot of protestants converting to catholicism and watching their 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 channels or anything they're the most gung-ho uh because i guess they they come from the protestant background of being able to uh, uh, a lot of the, the pastors anyway being able to eloquently state their case and now they're able to kind of teach in that way which maybe bring more people over but it's just fascinating how you have protestants coming to catholicism and they're so much more willing to share the faith uh, just I guess the Protestant background where they're willing to share the faith, but a lot of uh, Catholics at a whole, at least me growing up, faith wasn't discussed as much with other other people, and I wonder uh, why that is. Maybe it was just sort of a, a laziness. You're just inculcated in the environment of Catholicism, so you don't feel like you need to brush up on it or be able to explain it to an individual that you may come across. I want to get your a thoughts on that. Things. So like the converts, uh, a lot of them do come from evangelical strands. So they already have it kind of wired in them to, to preach. And so I think some of it is the conversion. So they're on fire because they realize that now they're in the fullness of the faith in Catholicism. And I think just the, the environment of evangelical Protestantism is to share the faith. So I think that's one of the reasons. And so you look at like EWTN, a lot of these channels will have converts who are, are running those things, who are on, you know, on fire. Catholic Answers is another one. In terms of Catholics not um, being as uh, open and sharing their faith, I think some of it is just horrible catechesis of, of my generation. The 70s and 80s and 90s was just horrifically bad catechesis. I think some of that is it. 
And I think some of it is just, it's not really wired in the Catholic world to evangelize. And I think even, even some of the, the radical traditional Latin mass people, they kind of look back in the 1950s as this halcyon time of the perfect Catholicism. And look, the typical Catholic in the 1950s didn't know much about the faith, but they lived in a Catholic ghetto, whether it be in Chicago or New York or wherever, they were living in Catholic neighborhoods. So their their whole world was Catholic. And so even though they didn't know really the faith that well, um, they were kind of buoyed or protected in this ghetto. And as Catholics moved out to the suburbs uh, after World War II, um, that's when a lot of them started to lose their faith because they were in this cocoon and they didn't really know the faith. Sure, they could repeat things from the Baltimore Catechism. You know, why are we created to love God, to serve God, and to know God? But they didn't really know the faith. And so you see what the advent and increase of secular values in America. And then you, you compound that with Catholics being sent, for lack of a better word, to suburbia and exurbia and being isolated. And then you throw in the really bad masses that we had. Uh, during this time, I think all this kind of led to this really bad cocktail. And if you look at the stats, I mean, even now, it's like for every Catholic convert we get, we lose six Catholics. But going back to what you said about Protestants, they poach our, 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 our low-hanging Catholics who don't know a lot about the faith. And we poach their pastors. So we're getting, as converts, people like Scott Hahn, you know, I, the list goes on and on about all these converts. But it's pastors who are like, I want to know the truth. And typically they start reading the early church fathers and, and then they're like, they, 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 they sign up and they're Catholic. When mega churches poach Catholics, it's typically Catholics that just don't know the faith. And then they get uh, attacked, for lack of a better word, proselytized by Protestant. You worship Mary, you worship statues, the church is a whore of Babylon. And that Catholic was not poorly was poorly catechized. They're like, uh, uh, maybe we do. Uh, uh, uh. Then you throw in the pastoral issues, because again, this goes into the infiltration of secular values, where a lot of these Catholics maybe were divorced and they want to remarry. And the Catholic Church is like, well, you need to get an annulment for, no, I want to do what I want to do, right? This goes back to the sin of pride. I want to do what I want to do. Well, actually, you might be a bigamist because in the eyes of, of Christ, Matthew 19, uh, you can't be married. If you remarry, you're committing fornication. Oh, I don't care what the Bible says. I want to do what I want to do. So they'll go to a mega church, and a mega church will be like, yeah, we'll remarry, no problem, because the mega church is all about bringing people in, you know, to fill up the coffers. Now, that's a very cynical view, but we know like a moral teachings that the typical mega church is not really big on preaching moral things. Uh, because they don't want to alienate uh, the people. So they'll be like, yeah, we'll marry you. Yeah, we, we don't care. And so you have these Catholics who, because of their own weakness and concupiscence, will be seduced by these megachurches. And and then also, I, I think the, the other big thing is just, you know, and this is a cynical view, but I would even say most practicing Catholics are secularists masquerading as Catholics. And, and, and it's not the other way we're like Catholics, that are fighting against secularism. I think most of us have been so vitiated by secularist values in our whole life uh, that we don't even know it and that we're just kind of masquerading as good Catholics. And then I just, there's a lot of things. Like going back to pastoral issues, another reason why a Catholic would leave the church is maybe their mom, when she died, wanted to be cremated and her ashes spread in the river where they she used to go fishing. So they they the mom dies, 
the, the daughter goes to the pastor and is like, oh, okay, we want to cremate spread the ashes. And the pastor's like, no, you can't do that. It's against church teaching. And he'll explain why it is. And she'll be like, but this is what my mom wants. Like, I'm sorry, you can't do it. And they'll be like, oh, I don't care what the church teaches. I'm going to go do it. And then you have the evangelical church being like, yeah, if you want to spread them, that's fine. If you want to wear much jewelry, that's fine. So you kind of look at just all these factors contribute to the kind of decline of, of, of Catholicism in the last decades, few decades. Yeah, and I think nowadays with – you were actually one of the uh, podcast episodes I heard with uh, the Awakened Man was talking about um, the, the, the excess amount of leisure time yeah. that we have nowadays. There's no real excuse for you not understanding the faith. And with the sheer amount of resources that are out now with YouTube and different websites where you can just read and understand and um, – learn that's what i've been diving into is just so many different youtube videos nonstop of trying to better understand it hopefully i hear it enough times that it'll sink into my thick brain or thick skull uh, <laughs> that maybe it'll finally uh, sink in so i think that was a, a very uh, good point that I, I heard in one of your interviews whereas I, you don't really have an excuse to anymore. no we don't look if you talk to a typical typical catholic man um you can ask him name me 20 starting nfl quarterbacks most most of these guys could do it. Or you ask a typical Catholic woman, name me the, the six Kardashian women. They could do it. And then you ask them, okay, name me the first four popes. Name me the four Marian dogmas. You know, whatever. They can't. They typically can't. But this is no different with kids, right? You ask the kids, just basic Catholic or Christian knowledge about the Bible. They can't do it. But if you ask them, name me, name me the... The, the the three the two sisters in Frozen or naming the the four emotions in Upside Down or you know whatever Disney thing they can name it big time so again some people would say it's a, it's a cynical view that we're secularists uh, or or Catholics I'm sorry we're secularists masquerading as Catholics and I would tell you okay well let's look at our schedule and look at our calendar and I think that tells you a lot if you're only going to mass on Sundays. And you're not reading the Bible, which is an indulgence. You read 30 minutes a day, it's an indulgence. Or going to daily mass or, or doing a rosary. And your only exposure to Catholicism is going to a mass that you want to get out of very fast, right? You're leaving after after the Eucharist. And you see the Eucharist as some transactional cookie. Um, then I would say that you're a secularist masquerading as a Catholic. And that's not even looking at your values. I mean, let, let's look at the values. 50% of Catholics believe in abortion. 80% don't believe in the real presence. A high percentage believe in contraception. So, I mean, that's another issue. So how can we say we go to mass, we're Catholic, uh, blah, 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 but your your values are not aligned with Catholicism. You're in rebellion. You're, you're in disobedience. Because again, obedience is the new four-letter word. So I would, I, would, I would really challenge, especially the men listen to this, because men typically like challenges. Look at your calendar. And be honest with yourself. Most of us in the parable of the sower, we want to say, oh, we're the seed that fell on fertile ground. Oh, we're so, I'm so great. No, brothers in Christ. Uh, most of us were thrown in the thorns and we're getting choked by what? Riches. We're getting choked by secular values. And we need to be very careful that we, we don't think that we're better than we are. Because Who's Christ's villain in, in the Gospels? It's the Pharisees. And that's the Pharisaic mindset. Oh, God, thank you for me not being this horrible person. I fast twice a day. You know, there's the, the, the parable of that. And then, and then the other person is, 
you know, the, the publican is like, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. So it's like this, this humility. But we need to be very careful that we think we're this great Catholic. And I'd say, yeah, no, most of us are secularists who uh, have been so contaminated by, by secularist values that we need to re- just look in the mirror and be very honest with ourselves and see where our weakness is. And look, there's great Catholics that believe 100% in church teaching. They're going to daily mass if, if they, you know, their work schedule allows it. You know, they are doing the rosary. They're doing these things. And kudos to you and keep it up, right? Christ says three times, those who persevere to the end will be saved. We need to persevere to the end. But I would tell most of you Catholics, look at your calendar. And if your calendar is more of like, I got to watch this college football game. I got to have drinks with my buddies at the bar. I got to watch Netflix and chill and watch the new season of The Crown. And your only Catholicism is your Sunday mass. I, I, I would really tell you to look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this this shift, though, if it's positive, do you think that there's a, a shift happening with more people um, coming back to traditions and the, the traditional Catholic faith as a whole and going with their teachings and understanding all the different uh, the stuff that, that comes along with it? Because I go to um, – I've been going to um, just a traditional Latin mass because I was able to find one near me. And it, I've seen documentaries about this too, but it's so true how it seems like you go there expecting, cause I grew up and I, and I've also gone to the Catholic church where uh, a few times during my like secular years and, you know, the waving back and forth. And a lot of the people in there are in their seventies or eighties most of the time. Oh, but yeah. that, then I go to a traditional Latin mass. And it's mind blowing of how many children are yeah. in the traditional Latin mass. And it's just, it's kind of, I've heard a lot of people say, it just seems like people are yearning for tradition. They're yearning for something that's, that's bigger than them. That it doesn't feel like just a, a stereotypical, like just get in, get out. You're, you're there for a specific reason. Um, and I, I hope that that's a sign of uh, turning back to uh Catholic. Faith. I think what you're going to have is what Pope Benedict talked about uh, about 10 years ago when he was still the Pope, that the church is going to get smaller. And if you look like in the book of Revelation, it talks about a lot of people are going to apostatize. I mean, Christ even talks about it. A lot of people are going to leave the faith. And so I think you're going to see a smaller, more fervent faith. And no doubt the growth in the Catholic church is in the traditional Latin mass. It's in the ordinary to the chair of St. Peter. It's typically in dioceses and or parishes that try to maintain uh, the traditions of the faith, whether it be in liturgy or in church teachings and so forth. So no doubt you would think, and I've talked about this on my channel, like you see these uh, septuagenarian, octogenarian pastors, and they, they go to the, they see their mass and there's like, 40 people, no kids, the average age is 63, everybody's checked out, nobody's singing, there's barely any baptisms or marriages in their parish. And you would just think that they've maybe heard of the TLM or something like that, and they might just take a field trip to this church and see it overflowing. If it's not crying, it's dying, you know, just Mm -hmm. this fervency, and then have the humility, again, going back to the four-letter word, have the humility, be like, what are they doing right that Mm -hmm. I'm not doing. And then Mm -hmm. learn from them. Again, this is humility. Learn from them and do it. The typical parish in suburbia can't do it. Those pastors can't. But I will say this. As these pastors die off, 
we've really cleaned up the seminary, not just in terms of the homosexuals that were there that were largely the cause of the sex abuse scandal. I mean, this is something that we can't talk about in the media, right? Uh, but, but as they've been pushed out, we've also seen this resurgence of much more younger, traditional-minded clergy. So as a lot of these suburban parishes, uh, these pastors die off and they're replaced by a younger priest. And I've seen this personally, that these young priests will come in and then they'll, they'll, they'll change it. They'll, they'll have, for example, 12 hours of confession every first Friday. They'll increase their daily masses. You know, they're going to go back to the root and then you're going to see the churches mm-hmm. fill up again. So I, I think the the future of the church in America as a whole is 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 it's negative and positive depending on how you look at it. I think you're going to lose a lot of Catholics because the statistics show that not just Catholics but Christians in general the the numbers dropping mm-hmm. uh, to secular atheism. But within Catholicism, in the heart and in, in the in the strength of it, that core is going to grow. Mm-hmm. And it's going to keep growing. Mm-hmm. But overall numbers are going to decline, at least in the West. You know, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Asia, um, it, the church is growing a lot, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And, I, this, uh, and maybe that's a good thing because I feel like we need to be um, maybe brought down a little bit and be kind of segmented into our community so we can find community and kind of be with one another and kind of grow in that, that aspect. I think that's one of the issues that you see with uh, uh, me growing up in some of the churches here, it's just, there's not that mindset of let's grow a community. A lot of people are, let's go to mass and well, not the traditional mass, but let's go to the Novus Orda and then let's just go. (laughs) There's no conversation or anything. And in terms of that conversation, I think there's a a lot of people that uh, hate on the Novus Orda, but I think there's things that can be done when you, you look at it that can make it, more reverent and beautiful maybe cut out you know all the folky music that's a lot of times sung and go back to uh, like a simplistic chant of some sort gregorian chant yeah, and it would make it so much better hubris. this goes back to hubris there's that old joke about liturgical directors i, I can't remember the joke it's like you're in an elevator and there's a, a terrorist and a liturgical director and you have two bullets how do you use it and it's like the joke is you put two bullets in the liturgical director or something like that but <laughs> it's very hard for a lot of these liturgical directors of these parishes to change because they were taught mm-hmm. uh, to believe that that music, the 1960s folk music is good music. And if you look at Musica Sacrum, which is one of the documents out of Vatican II, it, it mentions Gregorian chants are still the preferred music in mass. But you saw these change agents come in and put in this bad folk music that we still have today, 50 years later. And you can see it. Nobody sings. Everybody's mumbling. It's just horrifically bad music. But yeah, I think the number one thing you could do to change in, in, in a mass, I think there's three things that would, would change things quickly. Go ad orientum. Everyone's got to receive on the tongue on an altar rail. And I've seen parishes that don't have an altar rail and they use the first pew and it's empty. So when you come up, you just line up in that first pew, kneel down and then receive on the tongue. And then change the music. I think these are the three things that if you put these in pretty fast, mm-hmm. things could change. But that would require either a bishop who has that vision, who is like-minded, mm-hmm. or a pastor to do it. And I think the cynics would say that, I mean, the majority of bishops in America are are not really um, jiving with that idea of let's go back to Because they have the right. It, it, it's It's up to the bishop 
um, to, in, I, I believe actually it's up to the pastor if they want to do it ad orientum. Even in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, um, you can still do it ad orientum. So, I mean, really mm -hmm. it's their choice. It's just a question of hubris. Yeah. Um, so, well, that's a positive a positive thing, I guess, maybe. The, 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 maybe there's a possibility of, of change because I think that they can shift to just, like you were saying, little tweaks here and there can get there. Um, I'm just going to do a hold turn on our conversation because I was kind of curious about what uh, your thoughts on this because you mentioned the Manosphere area and stuff along those lines. What do you make of right now, like the, the whole, uh, just to end it off on this conversation, the red pill movement as a whole? I think, just to give my brief thoughts, I think there's some positives of it, of saying uh, like a man needs to get in touch, like get their lives in order and be yep. productive. But my issue with it is that the ultimate goal is, you know, women or material things. They don't have the ultimate goal. It's not, you know, God being no. the, the main thing to look at. And I think that's where it kind of crumbles this idea for me of this, that, that, that movement as a, as a whole. And I just want to get your thoughts since you're sort of, we're in that space and now are kind of moving away from it. Yeah, I've I've heard Catholic podcasters or YouTubers kind of talk about uh, marriage, and they'll just kind of tangentially mention MGTOW, and they they don't really understand the core of MGTOW. And I would say the core of men going their own way, the idea of eventually never just never marrying, mm -hmm. um, is really born out of pain. A mm -hmm. lot of it's born out of pain. It's either men who've just never been lucky with women. Or it's men that were married and the woman divorced them and took their money and they continue to have to pay money through child support or alimony on a decision they didn't make. Again, going back to the statistic that women initiate divorce disproportionately and then they lose access to their kids, you know, go seeing them from every day to only four days a month. Um, and so a lot of it is born out of pain. I think you mix that in with just the, the absolute hedonism that we have now where Men can get laid the easiest now than ever in human history because of what the sex positive movement and the, the sexual revolution has done to women, in which every objective indicator would tell you that uh, the more sexual partners a woman has, the worse it is for her mental health. But again, we, the, the, the media isn't going to talk about this because they need to keep pushing up the sex positive movement, even though it's not good for women. So if, if you see it from a male perspective right now, it's like, why should I marry if I can get the milk for free? Why should I marry if these women are going to be willing to cohabit? And I'm essentially getting the trappings of marriage without any of the risk of marriage. And so most guys are like, sign me up. Why am I going to marry? I'll just have kids out of wedlock or never have kids. And like you mentioned, the large, large majority of these guys are not Christian. They're not religious. Most of them are atheists. And so I, I, had, I had the lone channel where I was openly Christian on my channel. And that made it an outlier. And I mean, if you look at the big, big manosphere red pill channels, I mean, some of these guys have 500,000 subscribers and their message is essentially hedonism. It's just get laid, seduce women, use PUA, pick up artist tactics, and just have fun with your life, accrue money and all these things, all this hedonistic nonsense that Christ warns against. And uh, that's the message. And I think that the, the MGTOW movement, as much as the left wants to call it hate speech, is not necessarily hate speech 
It's more uh, well. I, look, I'm not going to say there aren't channels out there that are just openly misogynistic. I would not. I would say that there probably are, but I think the heart of a lot of these channels is telling men. Um, well, I, I, I would say the heart of my channel was telling men to work on themselves, to work on their childhood trauma, purge their addictions to alcohol, work on their physical health, be the best man that you can be. And then one of the ancillary benefits is you'll be more attractive to a woman, uh, but work on yourself, including your spiritual life, and just see the hazards that are out there, out there for, for, for men. Because look, if, if a woman has a YouTube channel that tells women, work on your health, work on your, your addictions, and hey, you look out for narcissistic, abusive men. That channel will be lauded on YouTube. Yeah, you go, woman. Mm -hmm. If a man has the exact same channel, then it's misogynistic. If you, you talk about there are some women that are you know, crazy out there, beware of these, these women, uh, it's considered misogynistic. And I think it's such a massive double standard. But I would say that the majority of the manosphere is, is, is relatively toxic. And of course, it's not conducive to a Christian lifestyle of abstinence until you're married, married and um, being worried of the, the, the seduction of riches, as we see played out by Christ and Paul and First Timothy, the root of love of money is root of all evil and all these things. And so I'd say the majority of the manosphere is pretty toxic and anti-Christian anti in its value. But I would tell people, just understand why this movement has grown so much and it's grown because of the breakdown of the marriage, the breakdown of family that we've seen now in three generations. And a lot of it is born out of men who either can't find a woman or the woman left them and they've been devastated. And so it's kind of a response to radical feminism. The, the, the typical man is for a guy will say that radical feminism destroyed marriage. And so MGTOW is a natural kind of response to is like, I'm just going to opt out. So just try to understand the worldview of these guys instead of just saying that they're a bunch of, you know, misogynistic mm. PY pigs. And some of them are. But, I mean, born out of all of this is pain and hurt. And where do you think that, uh, you know, us uh, Christians can maybe bring them back? Like, say you have a man of sorts, <laughs> or I say of sorts, I mean a man. Uh, today's day and age, just a man. <laughs> um, uh, how do you bring them going from that hedonistic secular mindset that was driven by those, say those podcasts or those, those channels where they have it in their mind just constantly, Oh, I need to get better just so I can have women or material things. How do you take, how do you think we take their mindset and kind of slowly shift it towards Christianity as a whole? Well, I would say like, I used to do a lot of coaching calls with, 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 with people uh, from the channel and the large majority of men want to get married and they want to have children. They want to do it the right way. But a lot of them are petri They're petrified by the fear of their woman eventually divorcing them and taking mm -hmm. their kids and taking all their assets. So I think that we're wired in natural law to want to be with a woman. It's not good for man to be alone as God tells Adam, right? We're, we're wired for that. So I think that helps. I think that a lot of men live the hedonistic life. They bang a bunch of women, they spend a bunch of stuff, but ultimately it's an empty life. And Christ tells you it's going to be mm -hmm. an empty life if you just yeah. pursue all of that. So I think some of them come to that conclusion and then they return to the faith of their, of their childhood. And then some of them are just lost and Christianity to them is, um, you know, there's that old saying that atheists are atheists because they had poor relationships with their fathers. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but 
like they, they had poor relationships with their dads. And so, so typically since their dads represent um, an authority, a patriarchy, and typically their fathers were religious, they're going to rebel against everything that their father represented by becoming atheists. And I think that you kind of see it with, with uh, some of these men as well, is that they're just in rebellion from Christian values. And some of them are going to come back, uh, and some of them, many of them uh, won't come back, and all we can do is pray for them. But mm-hmm. uh, my channel was overtly Christian, and because of that, like I would do episodes challenging men to come back to their faith. And, of course, those, those episodes would get very little views because these men have this weird cognitive dissonance because they want to have videos that are making fun of women, but also they want videos on how to get women, right? So there's this this cognitive mm-hmm. dissonance between I want to get laid, but I also want to hate women because yeah. deep down it's born out of rejection and pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see that with a lot of the, the manosphere. They just bring on, like, I think there was a, a channel, Freedom Tombs, that made fun of this where it was like the women are basically all just, I don't want to be mean, but they're they're not the the brightest, their sharpest tool in the yeah. shed. A lot of times that they bring on, and it's just, and then they bring on the the guy on there is clearly a, a cut above, like what because he's he's spoken a lot. A lot of the people that come on are the same people, so they have experience talking on these podcasts, and the girls don't. So it's it's clearly like one sided and calling the, the women dumb, which I don't think is a, a great thing as a whole. Maybe if you brought women and men sort of like on equal playing field so they can kind of have a better conversation that would be a little bit better but in terms of the the fear of marrying a woman and then getting divorced i would say i mean i didn't do this probably because i was a secular person but now looking at it is your best bet is actually going and being a part of a church where there's you know a thriving church i should say (laughs) where there's a, a, a big community where you now you can find a woman in that community that has a value of the the sacrament of marriage. I mean, as Catholic, we believe that marriage is a sacrament in front of God, and we don't want well, to break. Well, this that. goes back to to tradcon. So a lot of a lot of the manosphere, which the traditional uh, conservatives, we got the tradcon. They'll say that this is a unicorn, and what I what I would tell them is this: Look. Women have a legitimate complaint about men because we are the least masculine we've ever been probably in human history. And this, a lot of this has to go to TV programming. You have like Homer Simpson or everybody loves Raymond, you know, these, these role models of idiots, goofy, feminized men. And so also what we eat probably up, doesn't help either. Yeah. So a lot of guys have grown up thinking that this is the way you should be a man. And so there's this dearth of true masculinity in the men's world, which then it contributes to the reason why women are going to divorce them because we're wired to like, and I know the left will you know, cover their ears, but traditional gender norms work. They've always worked. So men love what? True, feminine, virtuous women. And of course it helps if they're beautiful, but true feminine, they, they, they imbue femininity. And women want real masculine men. So both sides have a legitimate complaint. The women, and men don't want to hear this, but the women have a legitimate complaint. And this is why you see this growth of like return to masculinity podcasts and YouTube, because a lot of men have been pussified for lack of a better word. So if men can return to true masculine values, and I would say part of that is Christianity, and women can eschew the sex positive, get a bunch of tattoos, you know, all that kind of world, and we can go back to the way it was in, created, then both sexes 
are going to be happier. And going back to the TradCon, you're right. So I'll tell people on, on the channel, I'll be like, there are TradCons, but you as an atheist are never going to meet them because the TradCath and the TradJew and the TradOrth are at their churches. And even if you go there pretending to be religious, they're going to sniff you out and know that you're not that way. But there are beautiful young women looking for good men. And I tell them, why are they going to choose you? Why will they choose you? You're an atheist. Your values are completely contrary to what she wants. She is in demand because a lot of men are going to want the beautiful trad cat, for example. So she's going to have a lot of suitors. Some of them, a lot of them are going to make more money than you. And a lot of them are going to be more Christian than you. So why is she going to choose you when you're an atheist? And they're just like, uh, uh, you know, I want the beautiful I want the beautiful woman who's going to be okay with shacking up with me and never marrying, but still has traditional values. I'm like, that's the unicorn because yeah. no good woman is going to want that. And mm -hmm. there's this disconnect. So the, the, the Manusford guys just really want to believe there's no good women out there. And when I tell them that there are good women, they get all mad because uh, they really don't think it, it, it exists. But from their side of, you can see why they don't think they exist because their whole life has been around crazy leftists in academia, either their college or whatever, and then women they see at the bar or wherever they're going, or women they see on these Manosphere uh, channels where they're just making fun of these these complete idiot, moronic, trashy women. Mm -hmm. You can kind of see from their point of view that they don't exist. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious what your thoughts on with, uh, you see, say, like one of the bigger uh, manosphere individuals say like Andrew Tate for instance but he's a, a Muslim you see a lot of uh, going to, to that religion as a whole and one of the the main comments you know or one of the things I've heard is where they talk about maybe Christianity <laughs> is is not really that manly so to speak in terms of like how uh, we men in the, the Christian community are and I just want to get your thoughts on why you think Christianity is a, a manly religion well, okay, so a lot of people said that Islam is the manly religion because they still mate guard. And what's mate guarding? Mate guarding is protecting your woman. Uh, so whether it be like having them still dress in their traditional garb or the fathers of the daughters won't allow them to go out in public uh, without a chaperone. And and so, and then some of it is, is it, even in some Islamic worlds, of course, there's a lot of the, you know, they'll still beat their women and all that. And I want to tell you, look, my mother was born in 1940, and she told me back in the 50s, my family's from Mexico, how she was chaperoned uh, back then by family and so forth. So we used to have a lot of the same values that Islam has regarding intersexual dynamics. We would protect the women. The women should be virgins when they get married. And men were strong and vibrant. But again, you know, secularism, Marxist values, the, the cultural Marxists have infiltrated and, and weakened the, the Christian man to the point where we're just a shadow of what we used to be. So it has nothing to do with Islam. Christianity was a very vibrant, there was tons of vibrant masculine men, but we've just been corrupted by cultural Marxism at a quicker rate, much sooner than, than Islam has. And if you, I mean, if you go to the more secular Muslim countries, like let's say in Turkey or Jordan, you're going to see a lot of those Western values creeping in. So I totally don't agree with that, but the idea of mate guarding is still, pretty pervasive in the Muslim world. And I think there's elements of it that we should still incorporate over here in America, but that'd be perceived to be completely misogynistic. Mm -hmm. you know, like, 
like a lot of wives would be like, I'm going to go to the bar with my girlfriends till two in the morning. And it'd be like, no, that's inappropriate. It's disrespectful to your husband. You shouldn't do that. You're controlling. You're psychological abusive. How can you say those things? You know, so it's like everybody in the Muslim world, the Muslim wife would never do that for a variety of reasons, but would never do that. But that, again, that goes just more to the infiltration of Marxist values. And I wonder if that, that idea of the uh, manly Christian is kind of skewed with because everybody views, views the lens through, uh, say, American Christianity or the Western Christianity. But I'm sure if you go into other uh, countries uh, where it's more of a uh, traditional mindset, you'll have a lot of a, a different look of uh, christian men in those those countries well i mean where would you find the, those those traditional christian countries because even if you look at bastions of catholicism like malta mm-hmm. in ireland those have been completely corrupt in the last 20 years in poland which was one of the last bastions i mean you've seen recently yeah. how there's a there's a, a uptick and how they're trying to get abortion passed over there and how the younger generations are going the way of France and Germany, where it's only the older generations that are still very Catholic. So, I mean, I don't even know where you would find this <laughs> traditional Christian point. country. Maybe, uh, maybe like a decade or two ago. Maybe that, that's the look. true unicorn. Is, is yeah. uh, there's uh, there's that leader in Hungary, uh, or Orbov. He's he's pretty traditional. Of course, some would call him fascist. I mean, I don't know if he's fascist, but there he is still pushing a lot of that strong virile Catholic masculinity. He's pushing men to have big families. He's pushing men to go to church. So, I mean, there are pockets of it here. Yeah. I just hope it, I hope that it, it uh, rebounds and cause I mean, uh, all the good things we have is because of the, the Christian society that was, that was founded. That's hate speech. <laughs> you say that's hate speech. Well, it's the truth. Properly propagandized by the, the woke, what, 1617, 1619 initiative, you mm. need to be canceled. Yeah, uh, I hope You're not. a white but, male. You're, you need to be, at least I'm a Hispanic male. I got some protection. <laughs> You're a white male. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's it's just unfortunate because people doesn't, it seems like they don't look at history. Like, you know, the universities founded by the Catholic Church and yes. all, all the science and the hospitals and all that stems Natural, from yeah, yeah. the Moral church. Law, yeah. Mm-hmm. All of it, and it's just, rights. and you're, and I mean, it doesn't take a, a genius to look at like the decline that we're seeing. We have so much stuff at our disposal, yet we are so unhappy, and it's just un- un- unfortunate. So, um, maybe uh, before well, we wrap this, deliberate dumbing down of Americans. I mean, they, they intentionally dumbed us down when it comes to history, and most mm-hmm. of the, the history teachers in high school and certainly not in college are are, are left, are certainly very left of center. And so it kind of kind of reminds me of Orwell says, you know, those who know, those who control the present control the past and those who control the past control the future. So mm-hmm. if you can either make ignorant or teach a false history to a, a young generation, then you're, you're essentially going to have them believe what, they, what you want them to believe. And then from there, you can manipulate them. And mm-hmm. Lenin, or I think it was Stalin said that, you know, give me four years of the kid and I can have him believe anything. Yeah. So you, you see this right now with transgenderism, with homosexual marriage, with global warming, man-made global warming, all these things the youth will believe as gospel because they were propagandized at a very young age. So it benefits government to keep people dumbed down because they're easier to control. Yeah. But we, I guess we, our hope is just in the fact that uh, Jesus is in, is in control, and that's just sort of what we have to go with and try to 
convert people and bring people to the church as much as uh, possible. So um, I guess we're going to wrap it up, but is there anything you want to shout out before we end this? It's very, Oh, I appreciate you having me on. Um, if you want to check out my content, go to YouTube. It's five minute Catholic apologetics and living and uh, there's just a lot of tactics. I would say the, the closing when it goes to apologetics, I think the best approach is answer questions and defend the faith. I would not really go in with an atheist or a Protestant trying to convert them. Just be like, if you have any questions about the Catholic faith, I'll do my best to answer them. And they're not going to be my opinion. I'm just parroting the Catholic Church. And I'll do my best to answer them. And once you answer them, just be like, is there another question that you have? And if they don't have any questions or you feel like they're going on some tirade, just walk away. You know, we have mm -hmm. to defend the faith and answer questions. But don't be heavy handed. Don't get into polemics. Don't be fighting because polemics is just a complete waste of time. The other person gets, gets defensive. And it's really unchristlike to be, be heavy handed with people. Just answer questions with a smile. There's things that you don't know about the faith. That's totally fine. Just say, I don't know. I'll look into it and I'll let you know. And just be charitable. Everything's about treating people with love and respect. And that's it. Just, just smile, answer questions. That's the best tactic, I think, for apologetics. Great. That's, a, I think, a great way uh, to end it. Thanks for coming on, Gregory. Thanks, Adam. Hey, guys. Thank you for watching this video. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. I always enjoyed all the interviews that I do. If you are new to this channel or this podcast, please subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel, whichever way you're watching it. If you are on podcast platforms, listen up, listen. I would like you to subscribe, obviously, and then leave the podcast a five-star review, whether you are on Spotify or whether you are on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast grow. And as always, just share this podcast with your friends and family. Also, share this YouTube video if you just want to share the YouTube video as well. If you're here on YouTube, that is the best way we can grow this community as a whole. And go to adambuckingham.locals.com if you want to join the community and also support the podcast. So hopefully we can do bigger and better things and have bigger and better interviews, and I can interact with with all of you all on a one-to-one -one basis. So go do that. And until next time, I hope you have a blessed week. Bye.